Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed Podcast. Folks, on this special day, I'm going to take you from the resurrection back to the crucifixion. Let me make this case. Listen very carefully. What happened at the crucifixion was indescribably powerful. We know the resurrection was. We knew the resurrection. He broke through death itself. But few understand the power, the indescribable power of what happened that moment at the cross when Jesus died. Now, I'm going to share with you a sermon I preached on this a few years ago. I'm going to warn you, it's going to be kind of heavy. You're going to look at a lot of scriptures. Now, the good news is I have PowerPoint, so you're going to see it. But you may want the notes, and you can go get the notes by going to www.wellversedworld.org. Something happened at the cross, and there's a dash between each one of those words. So wellversedworld.org forward slash something happened at the cross with a dash between the words of that sermon. I want you to pick up those notes. And if you can, this is not a short sermon, I'll warn you, it's a long one, and it's almost an hour, and and if you'll sit in one setting and go through this, you are going to come away so encouraged, you are going to come away so emboldened, you're going to come away so equipped to be able to stand in what is coming. So I want you to take a look at the cross. For some of you, this might be a review. If so, it's going to be a good one for you. If for, for some of you, This is going to be brand new, and you may want to listen to this more than once because this is going to equip you for what the season we're in and what is coming. But I want you to see something so incredible. Something happened at the cross. The nature of our sermon today is... uh with enough intensity that we prepared a special outline. If you'll take it out right now, it'll be a lot easier for you to follow what I'm about to share in the next few moments because I move at a pretty pretty fast pace, and that will help you a little bit. This is Palm Sunday, or known as the triumphant entry, when Jesus came into the city, and they begin to shout, as we have just been singing, Hosanna. That event, along with the transfiguration event that occurs uh, prior to this, that uh, along with the resurrection... And along with the ascension, when he rose into heaven, he broke the bounds of earth. All those events are designed really to help us understand that this carpenter boy from Nazareth is more than just that. And he's literally the king of all kings. He is literally God. And it's to help us understand the exalting of him is to help us understand who he is to get a glimpse of when he's going to come back. But I want to focus on one tiny part of the Palm Sunday, the original Palm Sunday, your triumphal entrance message. And that's when he was coming in the streets and the people said in Matthew 21, verse 9, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. I'm going to take that. I want to unpack what does that phrase mean? Now, we know it means he's a descendant of David. We know he's of the lineage of David. David even knew someone would be enthroned of his lineage. We, we, We understand that. But I want to take that the son of David. The descendant of David, one who's like David. I want to take it to the next level in your minds in the next few moments. And also, a verse you read this week, a part of your walk through the Bible. We're all reading through the Bible together. Numbers 19. I, I told Rosemary today, this morning, as we listened to the scripture for today's reading, I said, I, 
I'm ready to be done with Leviticus and Numbers. I've had enough slaughtered animals to last me for a while. The bulls and the goats and the sheep. And Okay, Lord, I'm ready for the next verse. Thank you very much. But there's tremendous significance in what you've been reading. I'm going to just refer to one verse. Numbers 19, verse 2, where it speaks about the red heifer. Park that away. We're going to come. That's not the only place these red heifers referred to. It's referred to in numbers of places. But we're going to come back to that. That's what you read this week. And I want to tie that in, and this will be my closing verse at the end of this sermon, with this passage from Genesis 3.15. This is the first ever announcement in the Bible that there will come a Messiah. There'll come one whose name is Jesus, who will rule over the evil one. And sometimes it's hard to follow this verse. I remember as a child hearing preachers say, this is the first messianic announcement, announcement of the Messiah. And I'd read it and go, what does this verse say? So I've helped you by tucking in parenthesis to make the verse have a little more meaning. And I, it's God speaking, I, God, will put enmity, strife, conflict, a cosmic struggle, a battle. Enmity is a strong word. And I, God, will put enmity, strife, between you, Satan, and the woman, woman, Mary, mother of Jesus, or humanity, flesh. And between your offspring, the demonic hordes, and hers, Jesus. He, Jesus, will crush your head, Satan. Now, remember, we're going to come back to this at the end of this sermon. Park right here on that phrase. That phrase. That phrase is so important. He will crush your head. Jesus will crush your head, Satan. And you, Satan, will strike his, Jesus, heel. Now, I want you to play detective with me for a moment. And we're going to try to solve a mystery. And we're going to look at a number of, of aspects of evidence and try to put them all together and, and see if we can make sense of a puzzle. So we're going to play detective this morning. And we're going to start, first of all, with this one premise. Here's, here's a piece of the puzzle. And we're trying to figure out how it works. The cross. The cross was not a statement of defeat, it was a statement of victory. Now, it's only, I, I pause there for a moment, it's only in 1983 on, in my own life, I understood that. Up to that time, I thought, well, we get through the cross, he died for our sins, I get that. But the resurrection, and I always used to proclaim the resurrection. In 1983, I began to understand something. And I couldn't quite figure out, and I've been pondering it ever since then. There's something about the cross, the crucifixion, that was unbelievably powerful and victorious, even without the resurrection, even before you get to the resurrection. Something happened. How do we know that? Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, we're human, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, God took upon human flesh, became human, so that by his death, at the very point of his death, by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Whoa. At the point of the crucifixion, when Jesus was dying, which would look like a victory for Satan, by his very death, he destroyed Satan. How is that possible? We're going to try to unpack that a little bit. There's something remarkably victorious about the cross. Now, I've spent time on this back when we did our series on the covenant, the covenant series sermons, but I don't have time to go back in and recover that, except to say this. There's something remarkably powerful about the nature of the crucifixion and the cross. That was not a statement of failure. 
you take a look at, for example, what the Quran, what Islam teaches, when it has the story of the cross, what does it do? It has a last minute switching because they would say for a king of kings to go to the cross, that'd be defeating. And so in the Quran, in the last second, somehow, there's actually four views of the cross in Islam. But one of the major views is that somehow God switched out Jesus and Judas. And so Judas died on the cross. That's one view in Islam. Or if you think of that group, that the cult group, the Moonies, that used to be around a number of years ago, they have a, 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 a theology which says Jesus failed. The Lord of the first advent, the Lord of the first coming, that means the, uh, Jesus who came, he had a major failure. He couldn't pull off what he was supposed to do. So somebody else is going to have to come be the Lord of the second advent and succeed. Now, they all believed that was Sun Young Moon until he died, and that kind of blew that theory. But... The, the Lord of the first advent, they say, he got to the cross and he, and he blew it. He, he lost. No, the cross is a statement of an unbelievable victory. We'll get to that in a moment. Colossians 2.14, having canceled the written code with its regulations. What was that? That was the announcement of our sin. We were going to pay a price. Having canceled the written code with its re regulations that was against us, our, our record of our sinning was against us, that, that stood opposed to us. He took it. He, Jesus, took it away, nailing it to the cross. This goes a little bit with what I had to say about last week, that sin was crucified. He became sin. He became a curse, Galatians 3 or 2 Corinthians. He, he became sin for us. Something against us, held against us, got nailed to the cross, and, and it was destroyed that day. So at the point of the cross, there is something, some inexplicable victory, not defeat, even before we get to the resurrection, I'm indebted, as I continue, to a number of different thinkers. But Perry Stone, I want to give him credit. He's the one that sort of got me on this journey of thinking uh, some time ago. And then a number of others that have helped me in sorting this all out. But let's go to the second thing. The second thing is the mystery of the blood. There's something about blood in the scripture that's mysterious. In, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, it says, The voice of Abel's blood, you know, Cain killed Abel, remember? The voice of Abel's blood cries out from the ground. At the several thousands of years later, in Hebrews, they're still talking about it. Abel still speaks, though he is dead. How does he speak? Through his blood. How is it, how is it the blood is so powerful? One might think, well, it's, it's called, in Hebrew literature, they use what's called personification. That's a fancy way of saying they take inanimate objects and they treat them as if they're breathing people. The rocks will cry out. Uh, the trees will clap their hands. Well, trees don't have hands and rocks don't have vocal cords. And, but but it's, a, it's an issue of personification where they'll take an inanimate object and assign a personality to it. But that's not what's happening here. This is something, there's something about the blood, innocent blood that's shed. It continues to cry out. That's one of the reasons that abortion is so catastrophic. Under the streets of our city flowed innocent blood, the screaming that's crying out, and it will be avenged at some day. What is it about the blood that when the children of Israel got ready to leave Egypt, a little bit of blood from a lamb, the Egyptians didn't like lamb, they didn't like shepherds, they didn't like lambs, they were repulsive to them. So it's very offensive. But here's the blood of the lamb that saves the firstborn in every one of the houses that had it. What, why, what, what about another part of the animal? Why, why the blood? And when you've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers, and I know we already talked about being a little bit weary with sacrifices of animals. Why all this bloodshed? What's going on? The writer of Hebrews says this 
In, in, the, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Our, our, we know that our, our sins are covered by blood. In fact, even in the Garden of Eden, even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were clothed to cover their sinfulness, to cover them, what was that? That was an animal that died. That's the first one. And there was blood that was shed for their sins to be covered in that point. What is it about the blood? Angels don't have blood. Demons don't have blood. Lucifer doesn't have blood. There's a life substance that was given only to humans and, and then given to animals as well. There's this something that was given to us. It, it appears that the demonic kingdom does not grasp what's in the blood. Satan's confused by the blood of Jesus, especially his blood. This blood of Jesus was, unlike ours, fully uncontaminated. It carried no diseases in it, no impact of sin. The blood of Jesus was remarkably powerful. What have we said so far? We're detectives now this morning. First of all, the cross was victorious. Secondly, there is a mystery in the blood. Keep those two things in mind. Two pieces of the puzzle. Number three, the crucifixion. Where was it? John 19, 17 on Golgotha. Where's that? Well, there's a traditional location. West, of, remember the language, west, the direction, west of the temple. And that's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's the belief most Catholics and Orthodox believe that this is the place where Jesus was crucified and, and where he's buried. And there's a, there's a church built over that location. West, catch my language, west of the temple. Um, many people do not believe that's the location at all. It's the place that got picked, picked in, the, in, the year, in the 300s by Constantine's mother, Helena, who came down and picked many of the sites 300 years. And she was remarkably accurate, probably on a high accuracy rate. This one, I don't think, is one of them. Now, most Protestants think there's another potential location. It's called the Garden Tomb. It's sometimes called Gordon's Tomb, named after a British general who was sitting there and looked over the site and saw the site of a mountain. It's now above a bus station. And he saw the site of a mountain and had the, the look of a skull to it, Golgotha skull. And right next to it, they discovered uh, this tomb right here. And it had the description is sufficiently close to the tomb that Jesus might have used. Now, the Protestants who even run this, and this is where we go on the trips to Israel, and there's a gorgeous, gar a beautiful garden. And the garden is designed in a way around the tomb where there's gathering places where you can have groups of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 meeting all around, and you, you have communion, and you worship the Lord. And it's really a joy to go there. It's just a secluded uh, garden right outside the gate, and you go in there, there's walls all around you, so it's, it's reasonably quiet. And you go in there, and you'll hear people from every nation of the earth worshiping the Lord in their various groups all around this gorgeous, beautiful garden. And we receive communion and have these times of worship, and it's just really quite amazing. But even numbers of the people who work there, would, they, they say, we don't know where it was. The point is that he's resurrected, but we don't know if it's here or not. And I would contend that, no, it's, it's, it's a fact not there. And there are the reasons you'll see in a moment why the location is important. When we use the word Calvary, he died on a hill called Mount Calvary. Calvary is the Latin for the Aramaic uh, Golgotha. And the Hebrew is very close to the Aramaic. So both those are essentially Golgotha. That's the word I want you to remember. We do know he was, he was, he was crucified on Golgotha. And Golgotha means the place of the skull. But a question I want to pose to you, whose skull 
was it? Why is it called the place of the skull? We're detectives. And so far we've discovered that there's something about the cross that's remarkably victorious. There's something about the blood that is really powerful and mysterious. There's something significant about the place he was buried because it's called the place of the, of the skull. Now, let me, let me go to the fourth point in our detective story here. And you follow on your outlines, you'll see the scriptures. Number four is the issue of the giants. Now, we're going we're gonna to jump to a whole different topic for a moment. And you'll see why I tie them together. The giants, where did they come from? We know about Goliath. We, there's, there's a number of different theories of how we had giants on the earth. I stand less than six feet, but picture somebody double my height standing next to me. Picture me standing next to somebody whose waist is clear up here. These were people who walked the earth who were at least nine, 10 feet, some think 12, some think even 15 feet, enormous in size. They were staggeringly huge. And how did they get here? Where did they come from and what happened to them? The belief of some, the word Nephilim, there's several words used for these, particularly Anakim. There's several words used for the giants in the Old Testament. There are some who believe that what transpired is that the fallen angels cohabitated with the women on earth and produced offspring like this. Now, that's, it's contested. It's debated. There's argued both ways. One could, one could make the case perhaps both ways. We do know this. If they're either the direct offspring of demonic intervention on this planet, or if they're not that, they are clearly people who stood against the will and the ways of God. They're never presented as the people of God. They're always trying to stop the people of God. For example, when the children of Israel were supposed to go and take the promised land, why did they not go in? Ten spies said, there are giants there. We're terrified. They're not going to let us in. They're going to wipe us out. In other words, they're always seen as oppositional. And when God saw that they would not go in and take on what I would consider to be demonic representatives of a demonic plan to block the children of Israel from the promise of God that he had given 400 years before that, 600 years actually back to Abraham, he, they tried to block it. They were ones who were contending to keep God from working his will on planet earth. And so there's the giants. Now, Goliath is one. And he had, depending on how you read the text, potentially four other, four other brothers. The story by some is that David took five stones so he could take out all five of them. We don't know exactly the reason for that. That's, that's one good understanding of it. They're mentioned in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles. And their names, if you want to see, Goliath, Saph, Lamni, and Siskabob. Okay, I can't pronounce that one. So, and then some giant from Gath. Who were they? Are they actually representations of demonic activity on earth? Possibly. Or are they clearly representations of attempting to block God's plan? One of the two, either way, they're not good. I would contend they're representation of demonic activity upon the planet. Now, let's take another piece. Let's go to David. David encountered one of these giants, Goliath. He encountered him in a place called the Valley Elah. He took him on. The stone hit the side of... Remember this? Remember this? Remember this? The stone hit the side of his head. Then he took his sword out and he cut off his head. Some people said David did that to prove he could get ahead in life. I'm not sure. <laughs> Luke, that was a good one. Give me a better laugh than that. You like that. You can work that into conversation with the water cooler tomorrow, can't you? Everybody will respond either way they just did to me, okay? But look what he did. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1754. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistine's weapon in his own tent. 
bring up a picture of what this might look like, Michelangelo's painting of it. And here we have this young kid who's now got the head of a giant. He's got his, his, his armor, his military hardware. Some estimates it ranged anywhere from as low as 75 to as high as 156 pounds. There would be a tremendous amount of weight, and he carried that back with him 18 miles to Jerusalem. That's one day's walking. That's a full day's journey. And so he's carrying this. Why did he bring it first? Why did he bring it, first of all? Good question. And why did he take it to Jerusalem? You say, well, because they're capital. No, it wasn't then. It was overrun by the, Je the Jebusites. That was a Jebusite city until David later took it. It isn't his place. He, 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 he took it, not to Hebron, which would have been their unofficial headquarters at the time. Hebron south a few miles. He didn't take it to Hebron. He took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. You say, so what? Oh, hang on. This is going to have tremendous relevance to you, your family, when I land this plane. Now, here's what, here's what David would have known. He would have known the Torah. He would have known the Old Testament. He would have known the Pentateuch. He would have known well where Mount Moriah was. Mount Moriah was the place, was inside the Jebusite city, effectively, around the edge of it. And that's the, now the Temple Mount. Mount Moriah was where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And that, that location and that event is extremely important. Most important location of the entire Old Testament, right there. And if you remember the covenant ser ser series I preached, you'll understand why. So David knew where Mount Moriah was, but there's another mount right next to it. Somehow, David took the head back. He buried it somewhere. And he kept the sword. The reason we know he kept the sword, it ends up in the tabernacle. When David was running and trying to get, to put an army together to defend himself at one point later, he goes to the priest in the tabernacle. This is 1 Samuel 21, 9 in Nob. Nob was right over the Mount of Olives, just right east. And he goes there where the tabernacle is. And he says, I, I need a weapon. He said, well, I have a weapon. The priest says, it's when you killed Goliath. You brought the sword back. We still have the sword here. It's behind the ephod or it's wrapped in the ephod. Now, there would be a sermon right there, but I can't stop there. So let me summarize this in one minute. Ephod is the garment of worship and praise. It's when you put on when you come to worship. That's what you did this morning. You put on the worship, the garment of praise. That's the ephod. And what's it wrapped around and what's it hiding? The tool of the enemy. When you come into worship and praise, you put the enemy's weapons down. You shut him down. You close him off from being able to do what he's doing. Your worship and praise has far more impact than you could possibly imagine in shutting down the work of the enemy. So there's great symbolism in this sword of Goliath being wrapped and hidden by, it's actually hidden by the, the, the ephod. But David comes to him and he says, man, I need it. I don't have a sword. He says, well, here, here's the one you got from Goliath. We still have it here years later now. You take it and, and you use it. Now, David understood this is going to sound strange. David knew the resurrection was coming. It was not for a thousand years yet. Look what we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriotic patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. Now, we think of David the king. We don't think of him as a prophet. But he was the prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants, an oath, that's the Davidic covenant, one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, on the throne, seeing what was ahead. Now watch this. He, David, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. 
When you read the Psalms, a number of them are messianic. A number of them talk about the Messiah. Some of them give the clue of his crucifixion. Very explicit. Some of them talk about his resurrection. David saw it as a prophet. He's a seer. He sees in the future as God shows him. Seeing what was ahead, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body decay. So here's David, a thousand years before Jesus, in his tent, he had, in, in the tent, or actually the tabernacle they established, they actually have the sword or the weaponry hid by the ephod. And he comes to this Mount of Olives, this place. Somewhere, the young David had buried the skull of Goliath. But he comes back this day now, and he's looking for the sword. This is representing the triumph that's about to unfold in a minute. So let me move us back to that question. What we've covered so far, we've said, in our, we're detectives. We're putting pieces together. And our first piece is, boy, the, 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 the crucifixion. There's something victorious about that. It's not a defeat. The blood, there's something mysteriously powerful about that. He was buried, uh, crucified rather, on Golgotha, the place of the skull. And, and the giants represent demonic intrusion in this planet Earth. And, and now David, he carried the skull of, of this man he conquered, and he buried it somewhere. Let's go back to the issue of the location of the crucifixion. Where is Golgotha? Well, this week in your reading, you read about the red heifer. Numbers chapter 19, verse 2. And here's what it said. Bring a, a red heifer without defect or blemish that has never been under a yoke to be taken, watch the phrasing, outside the camp and slaughtered. Take some of its blood on its finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. Something about the blood that's powerful. Something about even sprinkled there. It allows access somehow. Now, I want you a picture of, a, of what a red heifer is. And for those of you that are not raised in rural areas, let me just explain. We tend to look at this and call it a cow. And everybody calls anything that looks like this a cow. But a cow technically is only a female uh, animal that has a bovine that has, has given birth. A bull is a male that has the capacity to inseminate the cow. And a heifer is one that's been castrated. And the reason they do that is so that they, it puts on pounds faster for purposes of producing meat. And so most of the, the livestock we raised on our farm were, were uh, uh, in fact, steers. And so a steer is a male, but incapable of reproduction. A heifer is one that has not been inseminated, has never calved. So there's a red heifer that's mentioned through the scripture. You read it this week in Numbers 19.2. You'll see it in Ezekiel. You'll see it in Hebrews. You'll see it in quite a few different places. The red heifer is referred, is referred to. And in what you read this week, the priest was to take this. It was to be a perfect animal. They had to microscopically examine the animal to make sure there were no imperfections on that animal. They would then, they would then kill it and take the blood and then they would burn the parts and they would take the ashes of the red heifer and they would mix it with a vessel of water a vessel filled with water that was a living spring. It could not be standing water, stored water. It had to be fresh, moving, living water. You're beginning to get a picture, living water. And so the remains of this, the ashes of this, and of course the blood was also saved out, was put in there and this became an offering to atone for the sins of the people. 
Now, it's not that we get to the New Testament that it gets unpacked what this is symbolic of or a type of what's called typology. Something happens here, it's symbolic, it represents this. It'll be no surprise to you that in Hebrews chapter 9, here's what it says, verse 13. And the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. Now watch what happens next. How much more than the blood of Christ? This writer is comparing the red heifer, perfect, without blemish, less than two years old, young, with, with Jesus Christ. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? Hebrews 13, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned, watch the phrasing, outside the camp. And so Jesus, was all, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. In a moment, you'll see why it's important. To make the people holy through his own blood. Hebrews chapter 10. First he, Jesus now, said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and the sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. In other words, the law required them, but they're not pleasing. There's something else that God's wanting. Then he, Jesus said to the Father, Here am I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Wait a minute, what's that? He sets aside the first, the ashes of the red heifer, the unblemished first one. He sets that aside now because the second, because what Jesus is about to do. And by that will, he, we, have come, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The red heifer is a ceremonial ritual. It's the Old Testament sacrifice from Numbers 11 that you read this week. It was a reddish brown cow or heifer, two years, less than two years old. No yoke had ever been put on it. It was to be sacrificed as a part of the law of Moses. The purpose of the sacrificing was a water cleansing. It was a cleansing, and it represented the complete cleansing of the human heart or cleansing from our sins or the forgiveness from our sin. And then the blood was sprinkled on the door of the tabernacle as a way to have us to have full access back in to God himself. The imagery of the blood of the heifer is pretty obvious to you all. It's without blemish, and its blood was cleansing from sin. It's a foreshadowing. It's a picture of the blood of Christ that will be shed on the cross for unbelievers. Christ is without blemish. He's without sin, just as this red heifer was as a token indicating without blemish. Without blemish. The heifer was sacrificed outside the camp, number three. Which direction from the camp? We'll get to that. In the same way that Jesus was crucified out, outside Jerusalem in Hebrews chapter 13. Now, this event took place. The red heifer was sacrificed in front of the tabernacle. When the, the tabernacle was their worship center, their portable tent worship center, that they moved around and they packed it up and moved around as they traveled for 40 years in the desert. And if you remember, how many of you remember when I showed the artist rendering when the people were encamped around the tabernacle last week. You remember that? The orientation of the front doors were to the east. The tabernacle then, we switched from the tabernacle when they were wandering around to now years later, they're in Jerusalem and they're in the temple. The temple is the structure. It's a, it's a building in Jerusalem that was built. And once again, there later, ceremonially, the red heifer was again sacrificed as a picture or an image of what is to come. 
and we would contend in a moment, we'll talk about on the east side. But Jesus comes along, and he's the real deal. Let me just jump for a moment, uh, parenthetically, take a little rabbit trail here, and jump to the future. Someday, a new temple will be built. Someday. And we, we've had, we brought Reuben Prager to you from the Temple Institute, or he's one of the consultants with the Temple Institute. But in Ezekiel 41 through 45, a new temple is going to go up. And, and, and when that goes up, Jesus has already told us in Matthew 24 that the Antichrist is going to appear, fool many people. He'll fool many people. He's going to enter into the temple. And he's going to desecrate it. Now, for, a, for all this to occur, a temple has to be built. There isn't one there now. And a lot of complications of what it's going to take between now and then. But it could happen very, very quickly for a number of reasons I don't have time to go into. Because Israel is the timepiece. That's where you watch in Israel. I'm trying to prepare you for what's to come when I talk like this. Because something's going to happen one of these days. And it'll happen very quickly. But the Antichrist will come. But in order for him to come and desecrate the temple, there's got to be a temple. For there to be a temple to function the way it's supposed to, there has to be a red heifer. And so there have been constant reports of a trying to find the perfect one. They thought they found one in 1997, potentially, and then it was disqualified. They thought they found one in 2002, rabbinical Jews, and disqualified. And, and then there's a, a, a rancher by the name of Clyde Lott in O'Neill, Nebraska. I happen to know that town. It's right up on the South Dakota border, small town of 3,000 people. Uh, I've been in that town a number of times. O'Neill, Nebraska, who's, who's trying to breed a particular line of them and work with Israel to see if they can do this. Now, where will that will all take us? I don't know, but keep your eyes open on Israel as we enter this closure of history. Now, let me take you back to the desert and the tabernacle. The worship center in the desert, what you read this week, Numbers 19. On the east side, they only had gates one side to the tabernacle. And on the east side, there is where the criminals were executed. It's on the east side, Numbers chapter 5. You read last week, the week before, where the sons of Aaron, remember, they sinned. And then Korah, he sinned. That's where they were executed. They were judged there. And it, it, the reason for there is because it is believed figuratively that God sat in the Holy of Holies facing eastwardly. There's only one opening, the tabernacle, easterly. And the presence of God, he was there observing the judgment taking place. Now, now that's, that's in the tabernacle. Let's jump to the temple. The temple, the permanent structure in Jerusalem, once they got there. It also faces east to the Mount of Olives. It's over in this eastern section is where criminals were executed. It's the area, catch this, where the world will be judged. If you look at, the, here's, here's the Temple Mount. Here's the Kidron Valley, very, very deep. Here's the Mount of Olives. Temple Mount, where someday the temple will be rebuilt. Kidron Valley, very deep. Not as deep as it used to be, but still a deep ravine. And then here's the Mount of Olives. To the east there is where, right there in that valley, is where all the nations will be judged. I'm trying to prepare you for what will come someday. It's called the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Why is it called Jehoshaphat? Because Jehoshaphat means the place where God judges. And the very name in Hebrew of the altar, the red heifer altar, is called Mifkad. And Mifkad is a word meaning the gathering or the congregation or where we muster people together. We congregate. In other words, the Mount of Olives and there down that slope is where the world, the globe will be gathered for the great judgment of the Lord. Now, the distance outside the camp when they did these executions, when sin was punished, 
had to be, by, it was set by the Sanhedrin later, but had to be 2,000 cubits. 2,000 cubits is 3,000 feet. And that sets the stage for the distance between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. In the end times, in the end times, when Jesus comes back, he, he ascended from the Mount of Olives. He's going to descend to the Mount of Olives, the same location. Zechariah 14 tells us what's going to happen. When he comes, get ready for this one, the earth at that point is going to split. That section of the topography is going to split. A whole section of that mountain is going to shift northward, Zechariah 14. And a whole section is going to shift uh, southern. And there's going to be living water flowing from the Temple Mount, from Jerusalem, down to the Dead Sea. There's going to be a torrent of fresh water flow into the Mediterranean. Now, if you want to see how close we are to the end times, consider this, if you would. Several trips ago to Israel, as we were coming along the Dead Sea, I remarked to Rosemary, given the fact that the Dead Sea cannot support any life at all, no plant, no animal can live on that water. Given the fact that that's the kind of water around there, I said, I'm amazed at the number of increasing amount of greenage, foliage, trees, shrubs, plants, just right here by the Dead Sea, that's springing up right here. She says, Zechariah 14. Oh, yeah. Went there, and it speaks of the underground aquifer, the underground flow of water already happening, flowing out of Jerusalem that flows under the Mount of Olives and then right into the Judean desert, right to the Dead Sea. Check out Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 14, and you see the passage on this. This is a glimpse of how close we're coming to this, this final time. Now, Ezekiel eleven twenty three says, The glory of the Lord went like a cloud, moved to a mountain east of the city. That's referring to the glory of the Lord. The most important mountain in the Old Testament was Mount Moriah. That's the Temple Mount. That's where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And that event is one of the most incredibly important events in all of human history. It's set in stage, the crucifixion. But I don't have time to go back into that. We've talked about that in the Covenant series. The glory of the Lord... The cloud of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, lifted from Mount Moriah, from the city, went to a mountain east of the city. Where's that? Mount Olives. Mount Olives is the most important uh, mountain anywhere in the New Testament and currently as well. By the way, as you leave, if you'll look at the three large stones right out here by the, little, the drop-off loading zone, this traffic circle out here, three huge stones. Look at the carving on the other side of them as you come. One of them says Ezekiel 23, and it speaks, and the reason we have that on there is because when we went through the, the challenging building program, one of the verses God gave us was the glory of the Lord went like a cloud east of the city and resided on a mountain there, and we're on a mountain east of the city, and we embrace that as God honoring us and coming to this place. But originally, it refers to specifically the Mount of Olives. Now, let me give you a, a pictorial glimpse of what we're talking about. We'll bring up some pictures of what the temple would have looked like. Notice the two columns, by the way. Now, bear in mind, there are two different, there are two different uh, temples. There's the temple built by Solomon, the son of David. And that was built and, and, and wonderful and spectacular and breathtaking. It was one of the wonders of the world at that time. It was destroyed in 586 B.C. It was built roughly 900, 900 A.D. and then 586 completely, completely destroyed. 
then it's rebuilt. Zerubbabel and others try to rebuild the temple, but Herod, one of the, Herod, he wanted to do something uh, to leave a mark, and he liked building things. He built a lot of big things, and so this is called the Herodian Temple. This is the one, it was completed 32 B.C., before Jesus, and this is the one that Jesus would have seen, something like what you're seeing right there. Those two columns, by the way, have a name. The Solomonic Temple, the first one, they, in the Old Testament, they said, name them uh, Boaz and Joachim, and, and they have meanings. And if you remember, out in our atrium, the two columns there, look at the top of them, you'll see the Old Testament passages, the name in English, the name in Hebrew, and then the translation of what that means at the top of those two columns. And they're the same height as these columns uh, that you see right here. There's a whole story behind that, I've got to tell you. That in itself was miraculous. We didn't plan it that way. We planned everything else in this building. We did not plan that. And we were kind of shocked when it all came together, not by our, our planning. But there's what the temple would look like. And something like this will be reconstructed. Probably if, if we were to, let me just throw out one scenario. If we were suddenly have an earthquake and the Alaska mosque was destroyed and the Dome of the Rock was somehow destroyed and somehow in, in the world affairs, the Jews had access to this by effectively already pre-constructing it, this thing could go up very fast and very quick. And they have all the instruments and furniture ready to go into it with exception of the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. And Reuben Frager, who lectured here two different times, not very long ago, talked about what they're doing in studying of the vestments. So they're, they're ready to go back in to temple worship. This could happen very, very quickly. Now let's take a look from there to the Mount of Olives. When we look across to the Mount of Olives, you're looking a very deep ravine. You can't see the bottom of the ravine, but you look across there, and there you're looking at the Mount of Olives. There's four significant mountains right here that I wish we could just stop and talk about, but Mount of Olives is all we've got time for right now. Right in the middle of the picture, you see a church, a church building. It's called the Church of All Nations. All nations will gather to be judged. Remember the Kidron Valley is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the place where God judges. Now, right to the left of that church building is the Garden of Gethsemane. When you go in there, it's one of the most moving places. I really love going there as the Garden of Gethsemane. The olive trees, olive trees last a long time. And they, they sort of don't die. They sort of feed off new shoots and new shoots come up. The ones that are there now, there's one that could have been there at the time of Christ 2,000 years ago. It may or may not have one. But we do know this. The shoots that, that were fed, these olive trees come from that lineage. It's the nature of how the olive trees grow. So you're looking at the greenery right next, left to that building that are descendants, effectively, of the very same olive trees under which Jesus wept that night, where Jesus sweat drops of blood that night before he's crucified. Now, this is the Mount of Olives right here. But remember me talking about the red heifer. The red heifer just like all the common criminals in the tabernacle and the criminals in the, in the, in the temple, they all were, they, were, they were taken care of. They were executed to the east, always to the east, outside the eastern gate to the east. That's where the red heifer was sacrificed over on, the Mount, on Mount Olives. But it didn't look like this. Here's what it would look like with an enormous bridge that was constructed across. That's the way. That bridge does not exist anymore, nor any remains of it. That's the way. The, the one on your left is a side view of this gargantuan bridge that goes from the Temple Mount on the left and is moving across uh, to, 
to the uh, Mount of Olives. Look at the picture on your right, if you would. That's a view of this bridge going from the Mount of Olives. And notice what the priest is doing there. He's sacrificing the red heifer. And that's called the Red Heifer Bridge. That's one of the names for it. And that's looking across from the Mount of Olives back to the Temple Mount. Now, I want to stop for just a moment. I'm not done with the sermon. I'm going to wrap the sermon up pretty quick here. And you're going to see the application to your life here and now. But before I do that, I, I, I can't leave this without talking one more time about the fact that this Red Heifer, unblemished, was sacrificed as a picture of one who would be truly unblemished with no sin in him, this one Jesus. And when he died on the cross, he died for you. You will either take your cross, you will either take your sins and you will go into the, the valley of judgment and you'll be held accountable for them or else you will go with the blood of the lamb on you because Jesus has taken your sins. One way or the other, you're going to have to deal with your sins. Jesus' death on the cross is meaningless to you unless you have appropriated it to you. You're not a Christian by doing nice things, good things, though that's important. You're not a Christian by showing up for church or giving money to the needs. Those are all good things. That does not make you prepared for heaven. Only sinlessness can get into heaven. And you are not sinless unless the blood of the lamb has been applied to you and those sins have been washed away. The forgiveness and the cleansing of the red heifer, in this case, the unblemished Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is by saying, Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior. Somebody needs to do that right now. And I want you to pray a prayer. I want you to pray it out loud. But if you prayed it by yourself, I'm afraid you'd be embarrassed and I don't want to ever embarrass you here. So I'm going to have everyone pray the prayer out loud with you. This is for those persons who recognize, wow, I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me from my sins. So I'm prepared if I were to pass away. I have no idea whose last week it might be, but I want to have given one more opportunity to make sure we're prepared for that moment, whoever it is. Bow your heads and close your eyes. This is for those who want to receive Christ, but I'm going to ask everybody to pray the prayer out loud together. Dear Jesus, I need you as Savior and Lord. I believe that when you died on the cross, you died for my sins. <clears throat> I ask for forgiveness of my sins. Become my Savior. Become my Lord. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. No one looking around, all eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer for the purpose of inviting Christ into your heart, wherever you are, just raise your hand. Raise your hand high so I can see it. I would like to know. Thank you. Any others? Any others? Very quickly. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Just anybody else? Okay. Over here. Wonderful. Those of you with your hands raised, I see numbers of you. Would you just look at me? The rest of you keep your eyes closed. Those with hands raised, if you'll just look at me. The decision you're making is the most important decision. When we dismiss the service momentarily, if you would go to guest services, large blue banner in the atrium, they would like to give you some material and encourage you in the prayer that you have just made. Father God, thank you for those who made a decision this day to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and appropriate your death on the cross in their behalf and they walk in the sinlessness that's now been assigned to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, you want to celebrate that? 
Okay, I'm going to talk as fast as I can here because I want to wrap this up, but I want you to see how this connects to you. Here, we're going to end this thing. Let's ask the question again. Where was the crucifixion and what difference does it make? I want to take you to what the centurion said. The centurion at the point of Jesus' death. He says he saw something. What did he see that changed his life? That he said, this is the righteous one. What did he see? Luke chapter 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour. and Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So it had been dark three hours. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praise God, seeing what had happened, seeing what had happened, Praise God and said, surely this was a righteous man. What did he see? Was it the darkness that moved him? No, it had been dark for three hours. Something happened right there. Was the fact that Jesus died? No. They crucified people all the time and they all died. He'd seen a lot of deaths. What could have moved him? What did he see? It says he saw the temple curtain ripped in two. This massive unbelievably thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. You couldn't get in there. That tore from top to bottom. As access, we have access to God through what Jesus has done in his dying. Now, the issue right now is the location. Where could he have seen that? If he'd been over that side I showed you earlier, the church of the holy sepulcher, that's over on the west side. You can't see it from there because there's only one opening. It's on the east side. If he's over Gordon's tomb or garden, the garden tomb, you can't see it. That's over, that's over the side. You can't see it from there. Where can you see it from? There's only one place. Elevated place, Mount Olives. Looking across the bridge of the red heifer. From there, he would have been able to see this. The Christians up till the time of Constantine. Remember I said that site, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was not chosen until in the 300s, Constantine? Up until then, according to Eusebius, who was born in 165, died in 240, the first church historian, he, they all regarded it as a Mount of Olives, as the place where he was crucified and where he was buried. In fact, in some apocryphal writings, that means writings that's not in the New Testament that came later, but in the first century, uh, actually second century, I should say, what's called the Acts of John and the Acts of Pilate. I don't recommend reading them, but they're not for our New Testament, but they were written at that time, and both of them contend there was a cave, and the second one says there was a cave that was also a tomb up there. Early Christians wanted to be buried up there. Why? Now, let's look at that word Golgotha again. Golgotha is the southern summit of the, of the Olivet, of, of the Mount of Olives. As a small knoll, the Hebrew word for it is rosh. Rosh is the Hebrew word for head, the head, or if it gets translated like the cranium of, of a skull. This Hebrew word Golgotha, where does it come from? In Hebrew, you need to remember, Hebrew has no vowels. vowels. Vowel markings were added underneath the consonants later. But originally, they were just consonants. Imagine if you saw three consonants. You have to figure out what the vowel sound. There's five different vowels. You have to figure out what the vowel sounding. That's why we don't know for sure the word Yahweh. Well, it really sounds. We don't know for certain. Because we have the marking, we have the consonants, but we don't have any originally markings of the, of the vowels. So you have the, when you have words that sound similar in their consonant construction, now I'm not talking about the vowels, because there weren't vowels. But when you have the consonant construction similar, it means those words come from the same sourcing. 
called the study of Semitic languages. Some of my buddies are good at this. I'm not particularly skilled at it, but some of my buddies are very good. And you'll see words that all fit together in family, and they have the same common source. What does that have to do with us right now? Well, if you take a look at the consonants, Golgotha, let's take a look at that. That's the Aramaic word here right now. Goliath of Gath, which in the process of time, Golgoth, Golgath, Golgotha. There's a strong pot. Everything I've been saying up to this point is, is factual. This we don't know for certain. So I don't want to mislead you. But there is a strong contention, a strong possibility that the reason I, I pose the question, why is it called the place of the skull? David brought this skull back somewhere and he buried it somewhere and he knew about the resurrection, Acts 2. He knew about Mount Moriah. And Mount Olives is the epicenter of everything that happens. I wish I had time to go into all the things that happened to David on Mount Olives. All kinds of things that occurred to him. If you, when you read through, when we get into 1st, 2nd Chronicles and such, we'll be reading all these things about Mount Olives that happened to David. That's a very significant place for him. Is it possible? He brought back and buried on that mountain the skull of this one who is a representative of the demonic forces. Golgotha. The skull of Goliath, of Gath. They represent, the, the giants represent the demonic on earth. They also represent the component of the, the, even the 10 spies, remember, trying to go in and they couldn't do, they couldn't fulfill God's will that had been promised to them hundreds of years earlier because they in, encountered these giants. Now, let's put the puzzle together. Let's review as a detective. Here's the pieces. The cross is unbelievably victory, victorious. The blood is re remarkably mysterious and powerful. The crucifixion occurred at Golgotha, the place of the skull. The giants are representative of the evil forces in, implanting themselves on earth. David took the head of the giant, Goliath, and hid it outside the walls of Jerusalem. The location of all the sacrifices take place to the east, to the east, to the east. And that's the only location where a centurion could have looked and seen what's recorded in the, in the book of Luke. We put it all together. Now let me go back to the very verse I started with. Genesis 3.15. Here's where I started. And I, God, will put enmity, conflict, strife, struggle, a cosmic war between you, Satan, and the woman, Mary, humanity. And between your offspring, the demonic hordes, hmm, giants on the earth, and hers, Jesus, and he, Jesus, will crush your head, Satan, and your representatives. And you, Satan, will strike his heel when Satan pierced the heel of Jesus and the nails went through the heels, the foot of Jesus. That passage was fulfilled. But as Jesus was being lifted up, I believe this is the place where the skull of, of Goliath was buried. This is Golgotha, Golgotha. And as Jesus was body was lifted into position and that cross fell into that that, that hole or it was put on the cross arms of a tree like some advocate as that went into place, what looked like a defeat, thud when that cross was in place. And it looks like we think of the tearing of flesh and how painful that was. And it is the most painful of all death. But when he went into the ground on that day, it crushed the skull of the evil one underneath. And as Jesus' blood began to, began to drop, it began to drop. Yeah, you can clap for this. This is worth clapping for. It dropped on Golgotha, the skull of the one who represents the enemy's work upon our life. Because Satan cannot withstand this blood of Jesus. And just catch this. 
Just as the shepherd David crushed the head of Goliath, the giant, Golgotha, Goliath of Gath, just as he crushed that skull with a little stone that went, a rock that went, so Jesus Christ crushed the head of Satan with a little rock. And what was that little rock from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Peter says, we know who you are. You're the son of, you're the, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him in Caesarea Philippi and says, let me tell you what, by the way, Caesarea Philippi was considered as close to hell as you could get. He's at the gates of hell right there. Caesarea Philippi is not a city you would want to go to. It represents the gates of hell. And he says to them there, Truth has never been spoken greater, Peter. You could not have known this on your own. My father showed this to me. And based upon the rock, here's the rock, the stone of this revelation, based on the rock of what you have just said, the truth of what you have said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We're going to rip the gates of hell right off their hinges. That's what this message is about. And so on that first Palm Sunday, in that first Palm Sunday, as they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the triumphal, Hosanna to the son of David. Did they have any idea the depth of those very words that as David had defeated Goliath, that at Golgotha, Jesus' blood would fall on that skull and his foot would trample the head of Satan that day. Our God and our father. Somebody here needs this encouragement. Somebody here needs to know the enemy has been trampled underfoot. Somebody here needs to see the power of the evil one broken off of their life, their family life, their finances. Church family, keep your eyes closed. But if you're one of those, just stand. If you're one of those, just stand. I want to pray a blessing over you. I want to pray a blessing. If you're one of those that fits in that category, you need God's touch on you. Wherever you are, just stand. I'll wait just a moment. Just stand very quickly. If you needed God's touch, some arena of your life, your finances, your relationships, your health, your nervous system, your, your job, your employment, your whatever it is, whatever your need is. Father, in the name of Jesus, you see those who are standing this day that need the touch almighty from you. And we declare Genesis 3.15 over them. Though, though the enemy drove the nails through the feet of Jesus, the heels of Jesus, and brought some harm at that point, it would have appeared. But the cross is inexplicably powerful. And that blood, that mysterious blood of Jesus, drips now on the skull of the representative of Satan's hordes. And freedom is declared from Satan's attacks upon those within the sound of my voice this day. Those standing right now, Father, bless them, encourage them, protect them. May the hold of the enemy he's got over them or their family members or whatever... May it be broken this moment in the name of Jesus and freedom and power and might be theirs through the mighty name of the crucified Jesus this day. Well, I pray that that really blessed you. You can see what I meant when I said to you at the outset of the show, something, something so significant happened at the cross and I pray it touched you in the epicenter of your life, emboldened you, equipped you, make you able to go through everything you're about to pass through because something, something remarkable happened at the cross. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership.
Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.